So today we're going to look at the story that's, again, familiar to probably a lot of people in the room, uh, the story of Cain and the story of Abel. But before we get to there, I want to simply kind of say there's a lot of details, there's a lot going on in this story, and it's kind of like a little salacious at times. You got like jealousy, you got murder, and you, you got a lot going on. But what I want to say is that this isn't first and foremost a story about jealousy or a story about murder. This is a story about something else entirely. This is a story, I think, about justice and about fairness. And to kind of get everybody on the same page and not let myself off the hook either, um, I would say that I have a, a finally developed, acute sense of justice and fairness. Mostly when it comes to me being ripped off, then I have a, a finely tuned, acute sense of justice and fairness. For example, I can think of a number of times that, that I have gotten uh, righteously angry, I think, at somebody cutting in line in front of me. But nowhere can I think about, some, uh, about a time that I've been, uh, I've been upset about somebody cutting in line behind me, right? <laughs> I have a finely developed acute sense of justice and fairness when it comes to me getting ripped off. My six-year-old daughter is, in a, is on a soccer team right now, and they kind of just swap in and out, and it's one or two kids, four at a time or something like that. And I know at times, like, I have this sense of justice that when she gets ripped off like a minute of playing time versus another kid, like, my sense of justice and fairness kicks in. And, and I'm the first like, wait, wait, wait a second. It's not fair. Now that's maybe a statement that you've even heard before. Maybe you've said it once or twice before. Wait, wait, wait. It's not fair. Maybe you were growing up and, you know, there was always one of those kids in school that didn't have to study, didn't have to work hard. It just kind of came to him or her naturally. And it was, just, it was, it was so uh, fodder for jealousy, right? Because, you know, she didn't have to stay up late writing papers and then rewriting them, or she didn't have to stay up and, and, and do all kinds of homework all the time. It just sort of like came naturally to her. So even when it comes to test time, like she's the one that, you know, first went to hand in and you're like, did you see that this had a back on it? Yeah, no, you did. You still finished early and you still got an A. I'm over here struggling for B's, right? And you throw up your hands like, it's not fair. That doesn't go away. <laughs> you know, people go to the office, go to work, and I don't know if it's like friends with a boss or something like that, but, uh, but, but they're, not the, they're not the ones putting in overtime. They're not the ones working extra hard. But yet promotion time comes around, uh, uh, raise time comes around, and it always goes to like them somewhere else. Even though you're adding more value to the organization, throw up your hands. It's not fair. By the way, any of you who have been around kids for any amount of time knows that, that, that this like, comes to probably its clearest expression in the form of, of siblings, you know, a couple of brothers maybe, brother and sister. Uh, you know, heaven help us if in my family, I've got two kids, heaven help us if we forget one of the pool noodles if we're going to go swimming, right? Because the, the cries of it's not fair will resound throughout the city. You know what I'm talking about. We have all have this finely developed, acute sense of justice and fairness, particularly when it comes to us getting the short end of the stick. I think that's what we're talking about here. And, and even more than that, it comes on this, on this like peak point of sibling rivalry, of jealousy between the, the, the two of them. It's not fair in Cain and Abel. 
So if you want, if you'd like, uh, there's Bibles under the chairs in front of you. We're going to go to that story in Genesis chapter 4 in just a minute, because if you have been following this series along, if you've been following maybe on Facebook or, or Instagram or Twitter, I'm just going to pause. Maybe somebody wants to pull out their phone and, and do that and counter church, or counter CH underscore. Okay. Maybe next time you'll saving it. Do it later. I see a couple of glows. Awesome. Um, so if you've been following us, you'll know that, that we've been posting these like twisted tips. Uh, is what we're calling them, the tips on how to read the Bible, how to get the most out of it, how to read the Bible in a way that doesn't twist it or doesn't distort it. And I want to say like half of these twisted tips have something to do with reading the Bible in context, reading the Bible in context of the couple of verses before and after, reading the Bible in context of the book as a whole or or the story of the Bible, a story of God as a whole. Read the Bible in context. So to do that this morning, we're going to hear about Cain and Abel, but it's hugely important for us to know that what had just happened in the previous couple chapters is God created the world. He watched as Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world, and the whole thing started spiraling out of control. It's almost as if Adam and Eve introduced rot to an apple, and you just like watch as it grows and takes over everything. And like turns it all to mush. But what's incredible about the story of the Bible, when God is telling a story, it's that even in its darkest moment, there's like, there's a hint of light. It's almost like the light shines brightest in the dark. It's this incredible thing because even when God is pronouncing his, is pronouncing his judgment on, on the, on the apple that is rot, right? In order to, to, preserve the rest, right? Like, like he tells Adam and Eve, he's like, you have to leave the garden. But even in its darkest moment, God speaks these words of hope and says, however, even though everything has fallen apart, however, however, he looks at Eve particularly and he goes, you're going to have a son, an offspring, who's going to put it all back together again. Genesis 3, 16. It's this incredible like, like tone or note of hope in a very, very dark, hopeless time. So for all Adam and Eve now, they're thinking that this, that this Savior, this was one who's going to put it all together. They're not thinking thousands of years from now, Jesus. No, no, no. They're thinking like, I think I'm going to have a baby. And, and what, like one of my babies you know, is, is, going to be, is going to be the Savior, is going to be the one to like put this broken world back together again. And, and there's like, they go out of the garden with a, with a note of, of a bounce in their step of, of hope because they're going to have somebody... You know, maybe soon, who's going to put it all back together again. And, and then she gets pregnant. And she's pregnant with, with a boy. And then she has another boy. So she's got Cain and she's got Abel. And so you have to read this story with this like back of your mind thought that, that their parents are hoping that maybe one of them is, is going to be the savior that's going to put everything back together again. And so we read the story of Cain and Abel. Let's listen to it now. It's Genesis 4, and we're just going to read it. Uh, starting off in verse 1, it says this. Adam made love to his wife Eve, keep it PG, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Now she said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. Okay, hang on. We don't know 
Uh, we don't know what the age difference between the two of them is. For all we know, they could be twins, and Cain is born just immediately before Abel. We, we don't know what the difference is, the age difference is. Um, Cain is older and Abel is younger. That's all we know. But we also know uh, another distinction. It is that one of occupations. Nothing breeds rivalry among children, like there being some kind of an imbalance. It doesn't matter if like, hey, they're both good, but they're just different. Oh, no, no. When we get our kids fidget spinners, they have to be the same color, right? Because there can be no distinction among them because it's not fair, right? But no, there is a distinction here. The distinction is that one of them, one of them brings... Bring is a, a vegetables. He grows things in the ground. Cain. He's got uh, he's got fruits of the soil, as we're going to hear it read in just a moment. This is what Cain does. Um, Abel, on the other hand, this is the best I could come up with. Um, he has yeah. Uh, it's a sacrifice in a minute here, so just hang on. But Abel, he doesn't run a pet shop. Um, <laughs> He raises flocks, presumably to eat, okay? So Abel has the steaks, or lamb chops in this case, and, uh, and, and Cain has the vegetables. I just want us to observe there's a difference. We're not elevating one or the other. It's just a difference. Okay, verse 3. Now, in the course of time, oh no, you know where this is going. In the course of time, Cain, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel brought an offering of fat portions, kind of from this area here, from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. I just back up that slide one more to the offerings. Um, this, is the, this is the drama of the story as it's unfolding. They bring offerings to God, and God says, no, 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 uh, no thanks to one of them, and says, yes, please, and thank you to the other one. That's why King gets angry. That's why his, his face goes downcast. The face thing is, uh, is a blessing that's often used in number six is, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and be gracious to you. In this case, Cain's face is, is downcast as his offering is rejected. Now, there's a lot of speculation about, you know, why in the world were these, these offerings that one of them rejected and the other one accepted? It doesn't help things that I chose to put a lot of kale in here. You're like, I kind of get it. I understand um, why God said no thanks. But just stick with me, though. God made this, okay? And he called it good. And not just good for you. He said good, period. So let that sink in. Um, and Abel, of course, brings another one that says, um, hey, this one, this one is a good one. I want us to simply observe in the offering, it doesn't have so much to do with what the offering was that was brought because God called, called them both good. Uh, other people will kind of speculate about, well, maybe it was, it was some of the presentation, you know, one was offered in a different way or maybe the right way and another one was offered maybe in the wrong way. I want us to avoid this speculation nature of it and say this is an argument from silence. You know, we don't know. We don't really know whether that was the truth or whether it was not. There's not a lot written about that, so let's not go down that way. I think what's interesting and what could be the clue of what's going on here is this, uh, is this word offering. You see, in the Hebrew language that uh, Genesis was written in, uh, there's a lot of different words that the author could have used to say 
offering. It's sort of like living in Michigan. You have a lot of words to say snow, snow, sleep, slush, you know, drizzle. Or, we've got a lot of different words because we're around it all the time. Um, just like the Hebrew language has a lot of different words to, to describe an offering. And the off, offering that these two guys are sharing with God here is a specific offering called an offering of dedication. It's, it's a dedication offering. Think of this offering as a token, an external token, uh, token of something that's happening inwardly, internally. Now, this isn't an offering, a dedication offering is, is not a gift like if a guy were to give his wife, give his girlfriend some flowers or sparkly jewelry when he's messed up and he's trying to dig himself out of a hole. That's an atonement offering. That's something different entirely. A dedication offering is like that sparkling piece of jewelry when he gets down on one knee and, and offers it and says, it's expensive and it's shiny and sparkly, but what's going on here almost has nothing to do with a sparkly thing in the box. It has everything to do with, with my life that stands behind it. That's what kind of offering is going on here. So when God says no thanks to one, he's, what, he's, what he's saying no to or, or what, he's, what he's rejecting or what he's calling out isn't necessarily the gift, but it's the, the person behind it and saying, no, no, I don't think your whole life stands behind this, if you follow what I'm going. Okay, and we know that because of some of the clues that the storyteller embeds as we start to fill out the context of the story and read a couple of more verses. For example, what happens next? Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Now just pay attention to the tense because it's, it's a present tense like this is still going on. He still has an opportunity to dig himself out. He says, you know, if you do, not, not if you had done, but if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, and then he switches like the tone of the conversation entirely, and God says, hey, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God is saying this isn't a story about the offerings. This is a story about something that's going on deeper. And we know there's something going on deeper because when God's interacting with Cain, he doesn't say simply, hey, bring something else next time. Bring something better. Bring something more expensive. Bring something that you love more that's a sacrifice, that's more of a, more of a sacrifice. He doesn't, he doesn't say what he could have said, which is, you know what, Cain, you brought some of an offering, but Abel brought the best of the offering. He doesn't go down that road. He simply offers up this warning and says, Cain, word, word to the wise. <laughs> Did you know that the way that sin operates in people's lives is almost like, like it's crouching at the door? You know, it, it, looks, it looks really harmless, and it looks small so long as it's crouching by the door. You know what sin does after you walk in? The thing that looks so small, harmless, and innocent tends to grow much, much bigger. You know, and, it, and it often doesn't give you much warning. At the, at the risk of a digression, I, I think it's worth simply pointing out some of the wisdom here 
And, and if we could write ourselves into some of the story here, just the observation that God is making not only for Cain, but for all of us. Uh, for all of us, when, when God is almost like he's telling it to us, he goes, you, you know the way sin so often works? It's something that you look at, you know, and it's, and it's small, and it's harmless, and it looks like it can't do anything to hurt you. But to other people, it looks very large and imposing. To other people, it looks dangerous and threatening. And God says, to me, I see it as a large imposing force that's ready to pounce on you and take your life. You see it as something small. So I, I want to kind of ask, no show of hands, rhetorical question, but like consider, consider what it might mean in your life. What is that sin there that looks so small and harmless? That looks like it couldn't do anything to you. It couldn't harm you in any way. But somebody else, especially God, looks at that and says, do you realize the risk that you are taking by keeping this thing so near, even inside your home? Do you realize the risk that you are running? Uh, Cain obviously misses the point, and God continues. Now, Cain, Cain says to his brother, the sin is growing. It's getting large. It's getting threatening. Cain says to his brother, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother. Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The sin got bigger. Whatever that thing that was lurking down deep inside of him, it got bigger. And as it started to blossom into, into what it was going to grow into, it looked like murder. If, if, if you could kind of read this story in context of the story of God in the Bible, this is the first human death ever recorded in the Bible. And it's one where one brother murders another one. He murders a member of his family. You know, on top of this, we look at it from the perspective of Adam and Eve, who are still around. And they looked at their two sons, and they knew that there was a promise, that they were going to have a son who was going to right every wrong, who was going to fix this broken world, who was going to put every piece of rot and infection in this planet back together again. That was the hope that God himself had offered them. And now they're looking at their two sons. And the one had just killed the other. And the weight of the hopelessness behind that, it's, it's, it's utterly devastating in the story. But as I said earlier on, this is not foremost, first and foremost, I think, a story about jealousy. This is not first and foremost a story about murder, even though it was probably one of the most salacious murders of all time. The first death was caused by one brother killing another one. This isn't a story about jealousy and murder. This is a story about justice. This is a story about fairness. And the story goes on because it isn't about simple jealousy. This, those are all symptoms. The murder is a symptom. The offering itself of, of a side piece, that was a symptom. There's something deeper going on in the story that God is trying to tease out is God is, is trying to collect and, and present to all of us. And we see what else that it's about as we continue in the story. When the Lord says to Cain, a rhetorical question, because he's God, he knows, hey, where is your brother Abel? 
I don't know, he replied, an outright lie. And then a sarcastic comment to boot, am I my brother's keeper? No. No, of course you're not your brother's keeper. Of course you're not in charge of him. Of course you don't, you don't own him. Of course you don't lord over him. One human being cannot do that to another human being. Of course you aren't your brother's keeper. God says, you're his brother. You're charged not with, with keeping him. You're charged with loving him. You're charged with caring after him. You're charged with, with, with making sure that, that he has what he needs to, to thrive in his life and in his faith. You're not your brother's keeper. You're your brother's brother. Shouldn't that even mean more? Apparently not. The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, you hear that? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now the the punishment. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground. Does that sound familiar? Like his parents. You're driven from the ground, which, by the way, opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, because this is what you do, it will... When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. It sounds harsh, right? I mean, it sounds, it sounds pretty bad. And Cain starts to like fill out the story, and he realizes, this is not going to be good for me. And so Cain said to the Lord, verse 13, in reply, and I want us to pay attention to some of the, some of the pronouns that are used here. Like, like, who is this story about, at least in Cain's mind? Cain said back to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land. I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. You can start to see the common thread. (laughs) He is the one that just killed his brother. And yet he's reading this story as as if it's all about him. By the way, when he says, hey, whoever finds me will kill me. He's not exaggerating. Um, according to tradition, Moses wrote out these stories, and, and Moses was kind of the law guy, right? Moses is the guy who walks down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments directly written from God himself. He is the guy that's supposed to, supposed to relay what the rules are, what the law is, from God to the people to show them how to live. They're reading this story they're reading this story in a time of context of like, these are some rules to follow. What's the wisdom here? And the, the law was at the time as a way in a, a kind of a more of a, a primitive culture uh, without the legal systems that we have today. The, the rules and the laws were that if you had harmed somebody, it was their family can come and find you and exact that same type of harm on you. Uh, Babylonians said the same thing as, hey, it's an eye for an eye, or a tooth for a tooth. Maybe you've heard some of that before. Um, but in the, in the camp, in the Israelite camp of the people, their rules were, yeah, yeah, but, but if you killed somebody, there was no way that they were gonna like, come back and, and, and exact their own kind of justice, their fairness from you. They couldn't do that. They're dead. Abel's dead. No, no, but the law said, Yeah, in that case, it was up to the family member 
to avenge that person's wrong, exact justice and fairness on their behalf. It was just family. When Cain cries back to God and says, God, do you know what you've just done to me? Whoever finds me will kill me. He's descendants, their descendants from the first couple, right? Everybody is a relative. He's not exaggerating. Literally, anybody that finds him are in the right legal standing to kill him for what he has done. But that's besides the point, because God is, is almost, in a sense, like, like excessively graphic in the details of the story. Your brother's blood is, is, is crying out to me from the ground. Can, can you hear that? It's, it's almost like God is like calling, right? And he's saying, do you have any idea what you've done? And Cain's answer is a resounding no. Because the only thing that Cain can think about is how this impacts him. The only thing that he can think of is, God, I'm going to be a restless wanderer. Is God, whoever finds me is going to kill me. Is God, this is too much for me to bear. It's almost like, 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 like he's totally like, like inwardly focused. Martin Luther, not that one, the, the older one from the 1500s, the white guy from Germany and the Protestant reformer, it doesn't matter. Martin Luther was a theologian a long time ago, and he said that one of the ways that sin operates most clearly and most often is that it, it, it curls us up onto ourselves so, so that like, we can't see the greater picture about what God is up to in the world, about what God is doing with this blue rock of his. We, we can't see where God is moving in the world because, because sin, first and foremost, it like, curls us up onto ourselves so that everything becomes about me and about mine, about my personal goals outside of God's, about my personal satisfaction outside of what satisfies him, about what honors and glorifies me outside of his honor and his glory, about what makes me happy instead of the holiness that he asked me to, um, to attain. No, 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 sin, first and foremost, curls us in on ourselves. Can you hear it in the story your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And Cain says, yeah, but how is this going to affect me and mine? You know, God gave, God gave a secret weapon away from this curling up onto ourselves. I, I hope that you can hear this as a, as a gift, uh, not, not as a punishment, but, but God gives us a, a secret weapon within this. I think it's the reason why God doesn't just exact his vengeance on him now. You killed something that I gave life. I'm going to take yours. No, no, no. God doesn't do that. He simply makes him wander off. I think that God is, God is inviting him and God is, is gifting him the opportunity to crack that lid open and to offer his life back to the God who made him. That, that process, by the way, of, of, of cracking our hearts open, and when, it, when they curl on themselves, that process, there's a biblical term for it, it is called repentance. And it's not something that we love to hear about all the time, but I hope in the context of this story and, and kind of what takes place already and what's going to take place in the future, I hope that you can see that not as a punishment, no, 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 but as a, as a gift, because God is, is gifting Cain the opportunity to change which is literally what the word repentance means, is to turn around or to change. This is the gift of God, that you may change, that, that you might 
You might crack that lid open and come back from whatever far place you've gone, Cain. You can still come back. So we look at this story, right? The Cain and Abel story. And it fits us so well because we always want to boil it down and simple it down to like one, one kind of line, one sentence. And we want to distill it down. We want to boil it down. And I want to say, here's the deal. Don't be like Cain. Don't be like Cain. Don't curl up on yourself. Don't be like Cain and be stingy towards God. Don't be like Cain and give him just some of the offering. Don't be like Cain and, and, and offer a dedication, a, a part of your life. Don't be like Cain. Don't go through the motions of, of church, of Bible reading, of prayer. Don't, don't be like Cain. Be like Abel. Because Abel goes all in. Abel brings the best. Abel doesn't just go through the motions. We can boil it down to this. Be like Abel, not like Cain. Go in peace. See you next week. <laughs> Nobody left yet. Because we're not the center of the story. I mean, the whole series, instead of twisted, it could have simply just been said, you're not the center of the story. Somebody else is. We know, in fact, that this, this story doesn't boil down to simply be like Abel, not like Cain. We know that because if this story was a play, Abel wouldn't even have any speaking parts. Abel doesn't say anything the entire time. The only thing that Abel does in the story is make an offering and get murdered. That's his deal. That's Abel. Real inspiring Bible. Like, be like, Abel, you've got to be kidding me. Cain, on the other hand, I get. Cain, on the other hand, I understand. You know, like 99% of the story is about Cain and what Cain does and the opportunities that, that Cain has in front of him. As the story starts to unfold, I, I want us to see that in the story, we don't have the opportunity of writing ourselves into the place of Abel or writing ourselves into the place of Cain, you know, be like one, not like the other. Oh, no, no, no. I think that God is abundantly clear in his telling of the story. You don't have a shot at Abel. <laughs> Dirk, you're, you're Cain. The, the camera is going to follow Cain because that's what, that's what you need to hear. That's what I need to hear. I need to hear about all those ways that I close in on myself. On myself. I'm Cain, period. If you're going to read yourself into the story as your people, I invite you to read yourself in as Cain, as somebody who did something terrible, who will do something terrible, who will run away from God, who will close himself off from God. You're not able. You don't have a shot at being able. You're, you're Cain in the story that God is telling. Abel, remember, Abel is the guy who keeps his mouth shut and gets murdered for it. Abel is the guy in the story that doesn't speak up and speak out of line. Abel's the guy who doesn't heap down curses on Cain for offering a subpar sacrifice. Abel is the guy who simply offers his whole life to God and the sacrifice and say, if it's a dedication offering that you're looking for, I will not hold back. I will offer my whole self to you and I will not speak out of line. That's Abel. Abel is the guy in the story who doesn't say anything and doesn't speak out of line even though people are gathering around him and twisting, twisting thorn bushes into, into a fake faux crown and, and pressing it into his, into his forehead and watching the blood drip down. And, and Abel is the guy who doesn't say anything about it but keeps his mouth shut. 
Abel is the guy in the story where, where the soldiers gather around him, blindfold him so he can't see, and strike him again and again and mock him for it and say, prophesy to us, Abel, who hit you? <laughs> Abel's the guy in the story dressed in purple and hung up on a cross. Well, if you're the king... If you're the king of the Jews, Abel, get yourself down off from that. And the only thing that Abel says, little more than, Father, forgive them. They have no idea of the gravity of what they're doing right now. And he offers his life and dies. He is murdered for it. We don't have a shot at being anybody but Cain in the story. And the place of Abel is reserved for Jesus Christ. Amen? He is our hope. He is the one who offered his life as a dedication in our place. He is the one who never spoke up out of line for it. The better and true Abel is Jesus Christ on the cross. And for Cain, the story's not done yet. God has yet to have the last word. For all of us that are Cain, God is about to speak into us, into our lives and into our futures. God has a word yet for Cain. What do you think he's going to say? He watched as his good and perfect creation got marred and spoiled and ruined and broken. Is his last word going to be one of anger? If his, is, it, is his last word going to be one exacting the right justice that God has the right to exact? Is he going to once and for all wipe us canes out and say, I have had it with you. I am done with you. God has yet to have the last word. He is about to respond and he says this. Verse 15, but the Lord said to Cain and all of us, he says, not so, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then get this, and then get this. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Does it surprise you that the last word that God has to Cain is not one of exacting vengeance, which is rightfully his? God's last word to Cain is a word of grace, is a word of peace. I mean, does it surprise any of us that to all of us Cain's, God says, I'm going to hold back. I'm not going to pronounce my right justice right now, even though I could. I'm going to hold back because, because I still want you to have an opportunity, all of us Cain's, to crack those hearts open and to offer up the rotten, stinky garbage inside to God and say, it's never too late, Cain. It's never too late to turn around and to come back home. And God later on says in Ezekiel 26, Google it later, he says, hey, hey, here's the deal. If you've got a bad heart, if you've got a stinky, rotten, festering heart, and like Cain, if that's the problem, God says, we can fix that problem. I can give you a new heart, and I can, re I can replace that stubborn heart of stone with a responsive heart of flesh. We can do this. I can break you open and fix you. I can look at you with all the righteousness and holiness of my son, Jesus Christ, the better and true Abel. This gift can be yours. The last word to Cain is a word of a second chance. So this morning I want to talk to you Cains who need a second chance. I want to say whatever, whatever you've done, wherever you've gone, 
There's a second chance. It's never too late to turn around. If you've wandered away from God and have run away from God, even, even if you're here in church, but in your heart, in your mind, if you've wandered, if this has become going through the motions, if there's secondary leftover offerings of dedication that you're offering God of your time, talent, and your treasure, if you've wandered away, it's never too late to come back home. You have a second chance, God says. Failure is not final, God says. And a third chance if you want it, and a fourth chance if you want it. If you have messed up royally and everybody knows about it, or if it's still crouching and nobody knows about it quite yet, you have a second chance and a third and a fourth. God says failure is not final. It's never too late to crack open that heart of stone and receive a responsive heart of flesh. It's never too late. You have a second, third, fourth chance. Whatever you've done, Wherever you are, if God has been laying this, this project on your heart, on your life, and, you, and you've wanted so badly to act on it, to do something about it, but the, but the risk was just too high, and, and the reward was just too faint, and so, and so you've stuffed it down, and so you've not acted on it. If you've resisted it every step of the way, and God is here, and he's saying, hey, Cain, hey, it's never too late for your second chance for your third, maybe even your fourth chance. It's never too late to turn around and to come back home. Failure is not final. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't even matter what you do. It matters who you are. It matters, it matters what's, in, what's in the core of your heart. And if the core of your heart is the problem, we can fix that too. I'll give you a new one. It's never too late. I said that this story was not a story about jealousy necessarily. It's not a story first and foremost about murder. That's one of the details. This is a story of all of us Cain's raising our hands back to God, the maker of heaven and earth, and shouting to him, it's not fair. And God graciously responds in saying, you're right. It's not fair. It's grace. And that's even better. Let's, let's all stand up. Let's say thank you to the God of heaven and earth. And gracious God, you have made a way where there looked like there wasn't a way on earth. And God, this story is introduced, and there's moments right in the very, very beginning where it looks completely and utterly hopeless and dark, but it's in that dark place that we see your light shining so brightly. And we see these, these, these small nuggets, these, these promises of how you're, you're at work and you haven't neglected us and you haven't left us, and that you stay near to us and you give these promises and these hopes. God hopes that, that someday a Savior would come and start to put everything back together again and we celebrate the Savior who has come. And now we look at you, God, and we say, come again. God, those areas of of your kingdom that we can look around and see where every knee bows and every tongue confesses that you are Lord over that place and, and where your kingdom is flourishing. We see pockets of it here and there, but Lord, we look forward to the day when heaven meets earth and, and all of us together are gathered around the throne and we're proclaiming the name of Jesus who reigns completely Lord over it all, having put it together once again, finally. God, for all of us Cain's, Lord, we pray in hope that you crack open these stubborn, stony hearts and you replace them with a responsive heart of flesh. Jesus Christ, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.